Hello and welcome to Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. I'm Jason Concepcion, and this is your guide to the galaxy. From Trantor to Terminus and hundreds of millions of other worlds, space is a big place and we aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on the show. Every week I'm recapping and breaking apart every episode of season two with Foundation showrunner and executive producer David S. Goyer. Welcome back, David. Hello, and I am happy to be here. Today we're talking about episode nine, a massive, gigantic, packed with stuff, episode nine, titled Long Ago, Not Far Away, and we're delighted uh, to be joined by Laura Byrne today. Laura plays Demarzel, the mysterious robot, and we learn a lot about Demarzel in this episode. Welcome, Laura. Thank you very much. I'm also very happy to be here with you. Will you pronounce your last name, which none of us can do properly? Birn. Birn. It's quite simple. Oh, Just like spit that. it out. Birn. Yeah. Birn. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. <laughs> Let's start with a, with a quick recap of this really pivotal episode. Um, it was written by Jane Espenson and Eric Carrasco, directed by Roxanne Dawson. We start in this wonderful, almost storybook style, a flashback to the life of Cleon I, who is a young boy when we meet him. In the long ago... But not far away, a small and indulged prince lived in a big and ancient palace. He finds Demarzel's chamber behind the mural. Hello? And he discovers that she is there. She has been kept in a state of, would you say that this is a state of perpetual torture? Yeah, right? Yeah, and to- totally. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, yeah, I'm the one that had to be in there for 5,000 years. <laughs> yeah. And you say you don't sleep. I don't. I wait. Uh, and she asks young Cleon to set her free. Uh, he does not, but he returns over the length of his life again and again to this room. I have stories in me. Many stories. Would you like to hear one? Eventually, Cleon develops feelings for her and, as an old man, decides finally to set her free. But first, he reprograms her to ensure that she can never harm him, specifically him. What have you done? And so she is released to serve the genetic dynasty forever. And also this is where the genetic dynasty idea is hatched. Clearly, Cleon has been thinking about this. Yes. Mm-hmm. You are a human. You do not have a forever. But there is more to the plan. Demerzelle feels uh, betrayed. She is a prisoner again, but in a new form. But she, uh, she adapts to this. And essentially, she is a co-ruler, a shadow ruler. This is unkind, Cleo, beneath you. Uh, we go to Ignis in the present day where Salvor saves Gale from Telem. Careful. Don't want you to damage your body. I still plan to use it. Gale and Salvor flee to the beggar with the Mentalics following them and a fight ensues. Salvor kills Loran. Telem uses Gale's most traumatic memories to torture her. Her disappointed dad, uh, Salvor, dead at the hands of the mule. And it seems like Telem is victorious. But then the sight of the mule shocks her and the appearance of Harry in physical flesh is a huge surprise. And he kills her. And I liked her. Can't wait to talk about this. Over on the Destiny, Bell and Hober argue about whose dead guy is, uh, is the bigger figure until Day arrives in the Outer Reach. So you let yourself be pushed around by the dead hand of Harry Seldon? Like you're pushed around by the ghost of Cleon I? Day goes down to Terminus to personally accept the Foundation's surrender against Demarzel and Bell's advice, we should add. I will be the Cleon who chose peace. Day enters the Church of the Galactic Spirit and sees that they are producing new weapons, including Imperial Auras. Only an emperor may wear one. 
he says, your church is an armory and your religion is a cult. <laughs> and then he decides to lay waste to this entire planet. Kill the priests and counselors. Take the scientists alive. Uh, a dogfight ensues between the Galactic Fleet and the Invictus. Glaywin hits a decisive shot on the ship and the Empire wins the battle. Day still wants to poke around Terminus and he drags Polly to visit the vault and he finds Dr. Selden. Let's discuss a resolution. In my office. Day insists that Selden renounce psychohistory to save Terminus, but he refuses. Of course he refuses. And he offers Day and Demarzel the Prime Radiant. You can take this. What? Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Demarzel, you said you didn't come here for tea leaves. What if I offered you a crystal ball instead? And if that's not enough, there's more. Day orders Bell to destroy the Invictus and crash it into the planet and destroy the planet. Glaywin is down there. Bell is torn, obviously, over this order, but he does do it. And Day makes Constant and Hober watch this destruction of, of uh, Terminus. And it is shocking. You have your orders, General. Fire! There's a lot there. I mean, hearing all that back, for, first of all, well done, well done. <laughs> but... Um, I'm like, wow. It does feel when you get to the end of the episode like it's the end of the season. It really does. It really does. But there's another episode after. Hmm. Well, obviously, um, Demarzel's history is such a, a huge part of this episode. When we were thinking about the themes of this episode, war crimes really felt like such a dominant theme. You've got, of course, the destruction of Terminus. You've got the way that Demarzel is kept prisoner in the wake of the robot wars. On the one hand, it seems like this was done for research, but it also feels like this was a, a definite punishment, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Auberanus, who is the one that imprisoned her, hopefully will one day get into that. I mean, yeah, there's no question part of her imprisonment was I'm going to take you as a representative of your race, mm -hmm. right? And I'm going to imprison you forever. But he thought, well, she might be valuable. It's a little bit of both, a little bit of a trophy and also a punishment. And as far as we know, she's the last of her kind. You know, taking the last representative of that race and banishing them into purgatory forever. Yeah, I can't imagine a worse mm. war crime mm. because she doesn't sleep or it doesn't sleep, you know, and <laughs> and Demerzel's conscious the whole yeah. time with her thoughts. Yeah, worst form of torture. How did you find this character? Mm. Was there a certain moment where you thought, oh, I have it, I have it now? <laughs> no, I wouldn't describe like one certain moment. I think it has been a journey, like building up from season one. Like I remember David telling me when I was cast, he, he taught me a new word in English, which was slow burn. <laughs> and he was like, I will share you with the secrets like when we move forward. And I, I didn't know everything like about her history, everything before. So when I got to read episode nine, it blew my mind. The writing is so beautiful. The writing and the whole story is so compelling and it's so complex. And they're like Demerzel and the Cleons had been so complex already before, but then learning the whole history of their weird, like yeah. freaky love story, just like it, it blew my mind. How much did you know going into season one of her backstory? Not much. Not much. No. <laughs> she kind of knew that she'd walk the spiral, yeah. you know, mm. a long time ago, but we hadn't told you you know, how she came to be in the employee slash you'd be imprisoned by the genetic dynasty. And as you said, a shadow empress. 
I had some inklings and I knew before we finished filming season one that we were going to do a version of this story, but I didn't lay it on any of you guys no. until you read episode nine, Yeah, which was kind of fun. <laughs> because sometimes I just don't want them, the cast to kind of play the future yeah. sometimes. I know it's, mm. I know it's because their character would know, right? But I also am conscious of sometimes if you know too much about mm. where you're going and, and and maybe that's a conceit, I don't know, but... No, but I also love that I had done season one already before doing this, because I think if that would have been the first thing I ever did as Demerzel, it would have been like... It would have changed your performance. Yeah, and it would have been... I don't know if I would have even coped. Like, I, I think I really love to have the Demerzel of now, like of nowadays, to then go back and, and start to build towards that. And kind of even the like some details, like, you know, the way Demerzel holds her hands. Yeah. And we found the moment when we were rehearsing that kind of thing and he kneels down to propose her and kind of she only has one uh, answer that she can give, like, yes. But at the same moment, she puts her hands. It's the first time, yeah, her hands come first up. First time we see her hands come up and to kind of protect her. Like she doesn't have a choice, but at the same time, she's like protecting her inner, something yeah. like her soul, something like it's a defensive gesture. And then now when we see back, like when we look to season one, we understand like, oh my God, that where, where when it happened, when Demerzel became Demerzel, that we know. Will you love me? Yes. How I wish I'd asked you before I made it compulsory. We talked about this in the room that we always thought of Demerzel, and this is kind of the episode that we reveal that, as if a human captured an angel, Mm. like a higher being, and clipped its wings, you know, and then imprisoned it on Earth. That's the way that we thought of Demerzel. Wow. I like that. I had the basic sketch of what this backstory was going to be when we filmed episode 10 of season one. And when we did that scene at the end Mm. where Demerzel rips her face off and she's got that anguish scream. And we talked about that when we rehearsed that. And on one hand, that scream is coming from, you know, killing Dawn. But like, I knew that scream was really coming from all the way back to this, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, that yeah, yeah. killing Dawn is just like one of many sort of atrocities that she's had to do in, you know, yeah. the last, at that point, I don't know, 400 years or something like that. Laura, you mentioned that the hand gesture, tell us about the physicality of this role, because there is such a specific kind of archness, a strangeness to the mm. way Demerzel carries herself. And how did you uh, find that? I think, uh, well... She's a machine. Yes. But also it's kind of a control that she has. Like she she knows all the secrets Cleons have. She knows everything that's going on in the palace, but they don't know everything she knows. So it's kind of like she's always holding back. She's always observing. And it's kind of like it's effortless, but it's very kind of minimalistic. And now doing episode nine, it was really like the physique was it was so interesting to do that because I had to do half of the short story without moving mm. anything. It was like the ultimate fight for freedom, you but were in, without you were in moving. Like a, they were, you were sort of in a frame, like, in Yeah, a I was leaning back to this kind of weird little, I don't know how you say that in English. Yeah. <laughs> and just the only thing I could move was my eyes. And kind of having that ultimate fight for freedom without it, being able to move your body an inch, there's a lot of fire in, inside her, but it like it never kind of like <sighs> explodes. 
it's an incredibly brave performance and obviously you're nude from behind, you know, for some of it. And I know that was an emotional performance to give, but Demerzel is so sort of figuratively and literally buttoned up mm. for the first season and the season mm. preceding. And once she is sort of reassembled and her hair's down, I wanted to present her as a woman, even though she's not a woman. Mm. And there was an aspect, you said fairy tale. We also talked about Scheherazade for this story. And, you know, having seen Demerzel in, in this one way for the bulk of two seasons and then seeing her completely bare, you you just view her in such a different way and you have so much empathy for her and so much sympathy. Even though I don't think we see her as bare. I think it's a game. Like like she's well, playing sure. them. For the audience. I'm for saying. the audience, yeah. yeah. But also it's kind of what I love about the whole story is that she has to come up with different ways how to control the young boy, mm. how to control the like young man, adolescent man, and then like a middle-aged man and old man. Like, and, and the game, it's all internal. So it's kind of like she's so fast, but her body is stays very composed and I love that contradiction in her. I am rare, perhaps unique. The key to making more of my kind. Cleon, you're unique too. You're wiser than your predecessor. You have more power than your advisors wish you to know. If you wanted to bring me out of here, put me at your side, you could do it. You just want to get out of this chamber? No. Cleon. Don't call me that! I am Empire! Uh, I, love, I love what you said about uh, the game of the way she interacts with, the, uh, with Cleon. Mm. Because, you know, one of the things we've talked about on this podcast is specifically how much of Demarzel's, uh, the things she says, the slight emotions that she gives off are real, quote-unquote, or are an attempt to play whoever she's talking about. We talked uh, earlier about a conversation she has with Belle where she says, you know, I know how painful hope can be, something to that effect. I wonder if you could speak to that because there is feels like there's a sadness early in her performance when, when uh, Cleon is there as a young boy and then it changes to a more seductive thing and she's constantly shifting, feels like, to, to find the thing that might get what she wants. But how much of that is authentic to what she's feeling? I think it's an uh, it's a mixture like she knows when when the little boy comes that that's her only chance. She's been there for thousands yeah. of years. She knows she has to play it well. And to a little boy you can't start screaming like let me go, let me go. <laughs> like that she would he would just run away. She very quickly decides to go like the way like telling stories like the fairy tale kind of like just to attempt the little boy to stay. And then when the boy grows up and he's like his adolescent like a little bit grumpy kind of like nah, nah, nah. She's again clever. She knows that maybe attempting him a little bit, but kind of like saying that I've known a lot of men, but nobody was like you. Yeah. You know, yeah. like appealing to his ego. <laughs> yes, tiny little seed of like, you are special. And I'm the one who sees that. And then when he gets older, I think maybe there's already, because also the Cle Cleon has been the only person she has had any contact for many, many, many thousands years, like years. thousands yeah. of years. So I guess there's like part of her that also waits for him to come. And I'm sure they've had like fun conversations or I'm sure she also enjoys that she sees that she's compelling, like that he's fascinated by her there. So it gets like weirdly. It's messed up. Yeah. It's messed up. It's not simple anymore. When he finally frees her, like when there's the moment she could just run away, I think she genuinely has feelings for him and she trusts him. Like she raised this boy yeah. to be this beautiful man who wants to set her free. 
And then when he doesn't, and when he kind of imprisons her again, it's so, oh my God, I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. So, I can see it. Yeah, I can, I see, can see her hair because raising it's so on her horrifying. Wrist. Yeah. It's so horrifying to kind of like to give your soul and heart and trust somebody on that level and then be betrayed. What if I leave the planet, the system? I had hoped you'd stay after I'm gone. I believe your programming would bring you back. This is not freedom. Demoiselle, no ruler ever has that. I am giving you the lion's share of a galaxy, my body, and my heart. And this is no small gift. Yeah, we talk a lot about absent the programming, would she have any of these feelings? And you had asked that question when we were talking about episode three, you know, I know hope is painful. So my personal take when she's talking to Belle in episode three is that's mm. coming from a genuine place from this experience. Yeah. yeah. You know? I think so too. Yeah. When Cleon reprograms her, do you think that Demarzel ever considered killing him in that brief moment of freedom? I think there is a like a, a, a second or like a moment when she's like, I will run and I will kill that man and, and run away. But then he looks at her and kind of they share a history. Maybe there's something of a Stockholm syndrome. You kind of like you've yeah. been together. You've gone through so many things. He's abandoned everything for her. When when she asks, like, why didn't you get married? And he says, like, she wasn't you. Yeah. And the way Terry does it, Terry's man, I think nobody could kill him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like <laughs> him looking at me and saying that. I was like, okay, I know. You, you get a pass. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, yeah, definitely there is a tiny moment, but then she chooses love. Mm. She chooses to trust this man. Or as you alluded to earlier, she she hopes that her influence on this person, that he would do it willingly yeah. and then let her go. Yes. And then that faith in him is misplaced and, yes. you know, she's yeah. disappointed. Yeah. Which, by by the way, the reprogramming, because there are a lot of people on the internet yeah, that were saying, you know, Asimov's first law is how can she be killing people? Yeah. How can she kill Dawn? Is that where you're going? That is exactly where I'm going. How much of that is still <laughs> okay. in force? Because obviously we did see her snap Dawn's neck in season one. This programming supersedes the three laws. You know, I, I suppose that she would obey the three laws if they didn't contradict this I law. I see. Right? But this is a new law that in the hierarchy of programming sits above everything else. So it was the law to protect empire over everything. Not just empire, the genetic dynasty specifically. So that's what allowed her to harm the person of essentially empire because to do it was like cutting off a diseased limb or something like that yeah yes yeah like dawn was, uh, yeah. dawn was a threat to the dynasty that's so that's so interesting did cleon really love her do you think cleon the first i think so i mean i think so too yeah Cl clearly he's fucked up <laughs> yes yeah. and like you can love with many ways like it doesn't mean that you are always good to the people you love but I totally think he loves and I think there's a beautiful short story in season one is it episode three with yeah. uh, Demerzel and Cleon the first and we treat it as a like a, a couple a married couple kind of saying their last goodbyes and kind of I think there's the core like there they do really love each other. If Is that love healthy? Um, I wouldn't say that, maybe. <laughs> but there's definitely love. We find out in her backstory that Demerzel was from Earth, which at, at this point in galactic history is thought by some to be legendary. How do you both imagine her life there? Well, I will say this. There are 
at least three more Demerzel backstory, flashback, short films, whatever you want to call them, that I hope, you know, I hope the show goes on long enough for us to explore, right? So I'm interested in when she was a general, how she came to be imprisoned by Operanus. I'm interested in, she said that she walked the spiral 11,000 years ago. I'm really interested Mm -hmm. to find out what happened there. And we have a story for that. And then I'm interested in how she was created and what was the deal with Earth at the time and why she chose to leave Earth or whether or not she was forced to leave Earth. So those are three stories that that I hope we have an opportunity to answer. And, you know, if all goes to plan, each one of those will be answered in sort of like a successive season. Let's talk about Day and Demarzel on Terminus. We can't ignore, first of all, that he is here against her wishes against her advice and mm. uh, everything he does now that he's on world will basically be against her advice. Mm. It's such an interesting contrast to see her relationship with you know, Cleon the first, first as a boy, then as an older emperor and the day of the present time, who is quite a different man. She seems so disappointed in day. <laughs> she is. She yeah. is. What, she is. Yeah. He's just a, like a, shallow, (laughs) overcompensating dick. (laughs) I also think, but like, if you've lived for thousands and thousands of years, like, I think she's the only one who doesn't have a massive ego in the empire. Like the guys, the boys, their ego is so big. Like they're, it's all always about them and their feelings. and, And she's always behind. I think she cares for them. She loves them. And she wants each of them to be a better one. And she kind of like, every time there's like, maybe this is my new favorite. Maybe right. Th- maybe this one is... Maybe this one is the one who's yeah. going to like, listen to me yeah. and learn from me. But then they always like, choose the same. And at the same time, there's some responsibility in her because she is the one who raises them up. So it's kind of like, well, they made a monster out of her, mm. but she's also she's creating making, monsters. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, that's also very complex. It's the snake eating its own tail. Yeah. Because she's programmed to raise them. And that's what's so interesting about this episode is she programs them as much as she was programmed Mm. by Cleon the First. (laughs) But I love season two, Demerzel and Day's relationship. We had so much fun playing with that and kind of finding the nuances. And sometimes they seem like a true couple. Like, are they really kind of maybe... um, Like in that scene in in front of the mural in episode two. When they kind of share a moment, like it's us ruling, Mm. like we can make a a difference and stuff. And then in the end, when in episode nine, she just coldly goes like, no, you're a disappointment. You're a sperm. You're a sperm. A piece of sperm, and I can't do anything about it. I'm I'm sorry. I, I fucked you up, Sen. Bye. Yeah. It's cold. <laughs> <laughs> Day takes a very interesting tack here, which is to completely deny that this is even a war, because that would give them some kind of standing. He says it's a police action. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we're not seizing your property. We're taking back imperial property. This is all our stuff. I found that a really, what a power play from him, and very petulant from Day. Yeah, he is petulant. He thinks he's doing something great and being consequential by going to Terminus and mm. and taking the bull by the horns. But he's, of course, completely messing it all up. But also, you have to wonder, he goes down there and then, and then it's very surprising that Dr. Selden gives yes. them the prime radiant, right? <laughs> yeah. And so the, you kind of have to wonder, like, what's 
what's going on here? You know, and and like, is day being played? Well, in some way. Yeah. Uh, let's just get to that because it it struck me watching this. This is why you have the second foundation because this was going to happen, and so sure. I would imagine you need the, the the second foundation because the first foundation is essentially going to soak up all the heat, all the attention. They're going to draw the fire. It's going to draw the fire, and you're going to have this second foundation working in the background. So is is this exactly as as Harry foresaw? And I could not help but recall the the words that Harry said about the death of the warden. And now here he is being a wrathful god on a massive scale. Well, you know by now, Jason, that I'm not about to answer that question. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can... No, no please, please. Yeah, no, no, really? no, 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 no. That was a bad joke. You could say it in Finnish. No, but then the six Finnish listening <laughs> will like spread the secret. No. Okay. No. Um, when Day has Polly go through the spiel that they... The spiel, yeah. yeah. S- sell me on your religious. Sell me on it. Then, or even before then, was there ever a moment where he would have spared Terminus? They give up all the stuff, they surrender. Would he have just accepted it? Maybe, yeah. I think if they would have surrendered and he hadn't suffered the insult of like the, the you know, imperial aura, which is this amazing thing the emperors have, that they just literally give away like party favors. Yeah. I think there's a part of him that thinks, oh, if they would surrender, if they would bend the knee, and I could say, look what I did. Uh, yeah, maybe, sure. And I think genuinely he wants to believe that he can be different and he can he choose peace and he can make a difference. But then his nature. Yeah, he's <laughs> at the mercy of this very sort of impetuous, childish, insecure nature. So does the foundation now have a bug on Empire, like they have a listening device? If the Prime Radiant allowed Harry to listen in on Dr. Selden and the vault... Does whoever has the uh, Prime Radiant or whatever other versions of the Prime Radiant are out there have the ability to understand, like, what Day is up to within hearing of the Prime Radiant? That's a transitive power of storytelling. <laughs> I think that's, that's, a, that's, that's certainly an interesting idea. And one could imagine that might be a reason to hand the Prime Radiant over. You know, is it a gift or is it like a poison chalice? Mm. I was fascinated by the uh, interactions between Selden and, and Demarzel here. They're se- they seem to come to an understanding uh, almost right mm. away. They do. And it's also kind of funny because you clearly see Day really annoyed. Yeah. He's like, why are you talking to her? <laughs> yes, uh, like, yeah. Talk to me. <laughs> like, what is up with you guys? You're programmed to serve empire, correct? What serves it best? Is an empire's primary objective power or longevity? You can't have both. Which... Of those outcomes, do you actually desire? Now it's not the time for tea leaves. You must have something more with which to bargain. Otherwise, you would have tried to kill us. You would have just uncorked another one. Uh, Selden says to Demarzel, your programming is to serve the Empire, correct? What serves it best? Then you get the sense that she would love to have this conversation right now. What's your take on this, Laura? What is Demarzel feeling in this moment? Yeah, I think... (sighs) Prime Radiant is is everything for her in that scene. And I'm sure she would love to stay and like go through everything with Harry Seldon, but she has her programming and she needs to do what the Empire needs to kind of protect all that. And and so it's like, no, I don't have time for that, but I want the Prime Radiant. 
and I need to go and do my business. I will say this, and it's I'm not sort of betraying anything because it's it's in the text <laughs> of the scene, but Harry mentions her programming, yeah. right? And so he obviously knows she's a robot. Yeah. Mm. So it seems like he knows a fair amount about her sort of backstory or her circumstances, which is interesting because we've not seen how he knows that. Um, I'll just plant that little <laughs> seed. Oh, wow. Right after this, Demerzel has this, uh, you know, finally has it out with Day, essentially. What finally drove her to this point? It's kind of watching the way he, way his ego is again doing the same thing as ever, like as the Cleons have always done. And I think for maybe, I don't, I think Demerzel has found this day also entertaining at some point because their relationship mm. has been different than the other days. And for her, like she just has to repeat her life again and again, and then maybe finding a new kind of connection. So I think she has kind of also prolonged her kind of getting rid of this day because, because like she's... He's colorful. Yeah, she's enjoyed it. But then watching everything that happens on Terminus, kind of like she knows that, no, this is, I already let it go too far. I need to end it now. But there's also, she clearly cocks her head and she kind of gets some kind of message. We don't know what it is yet. And she says, I'm, I need it back on Tranter. And Mm. Day's like, what, what, what could be more important than this? Uh, And we'll get into that next episode. Yeah. But also, yeah, that moment of like that he's so blind to see, like he says, like, it's our moment. Yeah, yeah. And, and she yeah. says, like, no, it's your moment. It's always your moment. Like, like, like the ego is just like you're so blind. He's not good at reading the room. Yeah. No. I am a complete man. No, you're a sperm led by its waving flagellum, mistaking its render motion for complexity. Now, go do what you will do for it's too late to change you. Is Day at all threatened by this, the Demerzel speaking to him in this way? Because she's now heading back, and I would assume, gosh, if I'm Day, I'm thinking, is she going to go uncork another day and replace me? Well, it's interesting because, like, shortly after that, right, you cut inside the bridge and the doors open, and you see that look on Day's face. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't look very happy. <laughs> He's, he looks lost and sad and confused. And then he overcompensates by destroying the planet yeah. after that. He's clearly shaken him. I think it's horrifying and so sad for him that she apologizes for what he has become. Yeah. And like, what 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 do you mean? Like the because I also think he loves her. I think he yeah, needs yeah. her very much. And he's the one that like she has controlled him all of his life and kind of like she he really even though he chooses to have Sarath and kind of change everything. Like, he's so attached to her. Like, her saying those words to him that you are nothing. You are nothing. And then one can argue that it's really that that makes him destroy the planet. Let's talk about that destruction and and Bell following through with the Imperial Order to crash the Invictus into Terminus. If if Bell, who is quite torn over this order, if Bell refused it, would his crew have followed through? Would they Would they have just done it? Or would they have followed him and say, we don't need to go this far? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I mean, Bell's reasoning for doing this ultimately, I mean, we knew, we knew with the trajectory of Bell's story that what wound him up in a prison camp was disobeying yeah. this day's order, right? So we knew that we wanted him to have to follow through with the order. 
But in in beating out the episode, I mean, I remember very specifically because I I just always like to make it as difficult for the characters as possible. And so, you know, we knew that he had to follow through with the order. And then I was like, oh, 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 I know what we have to do. We have to have (laughs) Glaywin crash land on the planet. And, and be on the planet that Bell is then ordered to be destroyed and have to push the button that will sentence his husband to death. Like that is, a, that is an ethical and moral and personal dilemma. Glewin gives him permission, in a sense, gives Bell permission to do it. And he says that if, if you don't do it, the galaxy will suffer. What does he mean by that? Just the the anger the, and the frustration of day, he'll, he, much like he's reacting to this argument he had with Demarzel by destroying this planet, he will then do that on a galactic scale. Is that kind of what yeah. he meant? I think he's worried about like, where does it end? Mm-hmm. And, and that he feels that if Bell says no, right, Day will either kill Bell or send him back to prison. And then maybe one day there's a hope and he even talks about it in episode seven that if Bell still has a seat at the table, maybe at some point Bell could turn on Day or Bell could do something that like the galaxy is better off with Bell still around. That's I think Glewin's fundamental point. There's a bit of a parallel here between Bell and Demarzel in that they both have this extremely complex relationship with Empire and yet they are following orders. Bell really tries like an almost an outreach where he says to her, to him saying all the right things does it make you as nervous as it makes me. And Demarzel just shuts him down. Like, I advise, I don't question. You know, you do your job, I, I'll do mine. How does how does she feel about hmm. Bell? Does she even see him as anything more than just a person that is here to do a specific role and then exit the stage? I think she does. I think she sees his strength and that he, like, that he was willing to do kind of the right thing already like the first time and so I think she really like she's the one who wants him back like she's the one who convinces Day yeah. to kind of hire him back and Day doesn't want him and Day, Day has this rant of like ah, and she just goes like no no we need him we need him so I think it's definitely Demersel's plan and it's because she trusts him very much to be as strong as needed to kind of to fight this day I think she also admires him yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting because he's much more morally principled yeah. and mature and strong than Day. Yeah. But I think when she meets him down on Lepsis, yeah. I, I think that she has tremendous respect for him. I also think, and when he kind of says, it's not about me, like he's a, it's not only me, it's we kind of guy. He's and the opposite it's like, of Day. Yes. And I think she really values that because it's mm. kind of, she's also originally kind of, created to be inclusive right yeah, yeah. to be about more than just a sing- singular well, being well she was also yeah. a war leader you know right like yes she was a general as well does she feel a kinship with him on that level as a, as a leader of fighters i think so yeah. Yeah, yeah and 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 respect like definitely respect yeah i think so D- day's ability to do terrible things consistently surprises me like even even this feels <laughs> like oh we don't need to go here, do we? I guess we do. We're going to do this. Uh, where do you see episode 10? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not done. Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I need to ask about the... Um, is the vault gone? This vault? <laughs> she has to answer and finish. Can't... can't I'm not going to say. Um, what do you... Well, I'm, I'm curious. What do I think? Yeah, what do you think? I, I think the vault is... Yeah, I don't think you can destroy the vault in the way 
that the, the planet was destroyed. I think it would still, it would either be able to reassemble itself or it would exist in some other kind of liminal space. So I don't think it's destroyed, but even if it were, I mean, there are more Harrys, right? There are, well, we, there, we know of one. We know of one other one. It would not surprise me if, unbeknownst to the Harrys we know, there is a second foundation that has been running shadow-like in the background, hidden from all the people who might know about it so that it could survive this kind of catastrophe. So it would, it would not shock me if the second foundation is up and running somewhere, much to everyone's surprise. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Ignis. Yes. The choreography of the way Salvor uh, rescued Gail using the the psychic dampeners from her from her mental prison. Tell us how that all how you came up with the idea to that's how she would break out. It was a tricky one, but the idea was you know they've got these kind of whistles that we see in episode five and in episode six, and so we embedded this idea of of kind of like that's your pitch mm-hmm. earlier on in the story when she's talking to um, Josiah. And so we always knew that sound and a pitch of some kind would be use, you know, it, it can be useful in unifying them and it can be useful in creating division and incapacitating them. And then a little bit, a tiny bit, uh, I remember when I was talking about this with Roxanne, who directed the episode, I showed her the the psychic battle from Dark City, which oh, yeah. is a, a movie I co-wrote that Alex Proyas uh, directed. A fantastic movie. Thank you. But there's there was a little bit of that in there just in terms of the way the mentalics were reacting to these vibrations. It's kind of the same way a little bit the strangers are reacting um, when Dark City's kind of falling apart around their ears. So I think it's okay to crib from yourself, I guess, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Talem says to Gail, as a way of, mollifying her, you know, to put her at ease. She, Gail asks, you know, will I still be in there with you when we, when you put your consciousness into my body? And she's like, yeah, yeah, you'd be, you know, down deep. I'll be listening for you. Like, so yeah. I wonder if, if any of an echo of her will be in Gail's mind, even though this was, uh, you know, the, the process wasn't completed, but it was some ways through. Uh, I think, yeah. And I thought, you know, we also talked about in the room how Telem has, has done this a few times, yeah. right? Jumped bodies and taken over the body of someone younger. And and there are these little whispers of them in, in this in the same way or sort of a similar way that Demerzel is held prisoner, right? These souls are sort of all rustling around inside Telem and they're they're kind of still there also in purgatory. They're like ghosts that that can't be freed because they were sort of, you know, carried from body to body to body. And so I think however many times Telem has jumped, she's sort of brought these souls with her. And I think that, yes, a remnant of that would also exist in Gale. And we were also drawing weird parallels to Demerzel's mm. punishment and imprisonment and purgatory. Mm. Laura, I wonder if you thought about how Demerzel would react to the knowledge that there that these beings exist, mentalics that can read minds, implant memories, have pitched psychic battles. Laura's looking at me, she's trying to, what she's like, I what say? can I say? What can I say? What can I say? She can't. I mean, you go, you go. <laughs> she can't talk about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, could, uh, David, can you take us through this, uh, this kind of a psychic conflict between Telem and Gail? It feels as if Gail, her abilities, obviously Telem is 
so adept at this kind of of fighting. But Gail instinctively seems as if she is finding something that is quite powerful as well. Can you take us through this conflict of theirs? Yeah, I think Gail is innately more powerful than Talon, but she's just green. Yeah. Is the bottom line, right? And that's one of the reasons why Talon wants her is because she's so effing powerful and she can take that and co-opt that. But she's a quick study. I think Talon says something along those lines. And that's one of the things that we've set up with Gail, even from the beginning, from her relationship to the Book of Folding, the Ninth Proof of Folding. And when she meets Harry Selden, she's a very, very quick, agile mind. And so very quickly, she picks up some of these abilities and she obviously doesn't defeat Talon, but she gets close, yeah. right? She definitely gives Talon a run for her money. And that's all with her being very, very green. It seems to me that Gail fuses her nascent mentalic abilities with her ability to look into the future with this gambit of showing Tellum the mule, understanding that oh, when she yes. gazed upon the mule, it was this shock, maybe if I do that to Tellum. But it also felt like if she's using her ability to see the future, the mule saw this, right? This, there's a place somewhere in the far-flung future where the yes. mule knew that this yes. happened. He's aware of her peeking out at her from the past, yeah. And so then it becomes this weird, again, snake eating its own tail <laughs> right. sort of thing. Is is the fact that she did that going to lead us to that moment? And then uh, the shocking reveal that Harry, in his fresh new body, is back around. I, You're not going to answer me, but I'd, where did he come from? <laughs> where was he? Well, I definitely... I'm not going to answer that. But I will say this season in terms of Harry's journey was one where we took a guy who was aloof and brilliant, but somewhat mythologized, right, in season one. And now we wanted to peel back the layers and get you break him down and put him through psychotherapy and see his backstory and literally get him to, at the end of nine, like a completely non-thinking, you know, non-intellectual, you know, primal state. He kills Talon like a caveman yeah. because he can't go toe-to-toe with her in terms of her powers. So all he has is the element of surprise and then brute force at the end. And we just thought that would be really interesting for a guy who so much lived in the place of the mind. Yeah, I, I'm thinking back to the way he uh, killed the administrator from his flashback episode it's so at so such at a remove you know he's always working through other sure. people and here he is active with a rock in his hand just smashing in Tellum's head it was quite a shock it feels like whatever harry emerges from this is going to be a different guy than even the harry that was alive was no question uh well that brings us to another round of Building the Foundation, our light speed round of questions. This time around, it's a special uh, robot edition. <laughs> Show your one. You will be allowed to build your foundation. I was supposed to be the one. Why did you put her in the park? You want to be in control? You know nothing! Laura or David, either of you, f- feel free to respond. Of course, keep the answers short and sweet. Ooh, I- I'm-, I'm not sure if I know how to keep short and sweet in English. Can I do them in Finnish? Absolutely. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, shoot. Uh, can Demarzel eat if she wants to? She can, but she won't. 
Uh, does she need to work out to maintain this physique? Like what kind of maintenance routine does she go through? <laughs> I think she does pole dancing in the throne room. <laughs> like she has her own routines. Just no, she, she doesn't she, need to work out. She doesn't need to work out. No, she does it for fun. Maybe uh, if you could be a, either a mentalic like Telem or a, a robot like Demarzel, which would you choose? Ooh, good question. Well, Demarzel, of course. Even knowing her backstory? Well, she her backstory is not like she's been through a lot, a lot too. Yeah, I mean, tell him. Oh, tell him. You're right. You're right. Fair enough. Uh, do you have a personal favorite Cleon that we've met thus far? Tämä mä vastaan suomeksi. Mä voin koska mä viitti sanoa kuka niistä koska ne on kaikki mun suosikkeja. And you're not even going to translate that? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> what is Demarzel most proud of? Her, the song that she made up for the boys. Mm. Her th- I love her theme song. I think it's beautiful. That's a good one. Yeah, that is great. And there's a story behind that one, too, that we'll unpack one day. <laughs> Does Demerzel have perfect recall, like a computer? Can she remember everything that she's ever experienced? Yes. Painfully, yes. I agree. Wow. If you could reprogram Demerzel with a with a new law of robotics, what would you implant her with? Mm, I would make... All robots, I think all robots should speak Finnish. <laughs> I would add that robots aren't allowed to write <laughs> because that's going on in the It really yeah, is. It's happening right now it with is. the writer's strike. Beyond the Xeroth law, no robots will ever be able to generate writing or art, you know, no AI created material. Laura and David, thank you so much for playing. Kiitos tosi paljon. Oli hauskaa olla vieran. Kiitos. I don't know what she said. It probably wasn't goodbye. Maybe it was goodbye. <laughs> it was something beautiful. But thank you for having us. It was thank beautiful. You. Okay, cool. Don't miss next week's episode. It's the finale, folks. Uh, we can talk about all the spoilers. I can't wait to watch it. And thank you all for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis and Barry Finkel. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Ben Goldberg. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Darby Maloney is our editor. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Music by Carly Bond with additional music provided by Apple. I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks for listening. You once told me that stories become burdens if left untold. It's been a while since I heard one from you.